You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome everyone to another exciting episode of the Driving Law podcast. I am not Kyla Lee, the usual host. I'm filling in for her today. My name is Brandon Mosco, uh, and it is an honor to be the guest host in Kyla's place. And another honor is the guest that we have on today, uh, a frequent visitor of the podcast. I believe he's been on a couple of times uh, when he has time in his busy schedule, uh, Mr. Grant Gokkatro. Hi, Grant. How are you doing? Thank you, Mr. Moscow. Yes, it's good to be here. So Grant, for those people that don't know, uh, spent 28 years, I believe, working in police enforcement uh, in the West Vancouver Police Department, the Integrated Road Safety Unit with the RCMP. I believe you had a stint in the New West Police Department and with a focus on traffic. Um, And for the last few years, he's been a expert and consultant and has testified a number of times in court. Is that right, Grant? Correct. Uh, also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, he has some other names I like to call him. Darth Radar and Robot Vulture. I don't know which one's your favorite of those two. Darth Radar is brilliant. Uh, so, Grant, um, there's a few things that we are hopefully going to talk about today that Kyla will be proud of us for, for going over. Um, so there was a recent article um, from just the other day in Victoria that the police uh, had a roadblock set up and doing impaired driving enforcement, as you know how that goes. And yeah. they were uh, stopping so many uh, vehicles that they ran out of tow trucks, so then they stopped the roadblock after about 45 minutes or so because they just couldn't keep up with the demand, apparently. Um, So I don't know if you heard about that. It was uh, July 31st. Well, according to the the news report, it occurred over two nights, Friday night to Saturday night. They had 14 the first night and 12 the second night. So um, that's a lot. And of course, I guess we're dealing with smaller jurisdictions that don't have a lot of tow trucks on the go because sometimes they use a contract company that doesn't have enough trucks running at night. I suspect that could be part of it. So has that ever happened to you when you guys were doing um, enforcement of that nature? Did you ever have to shut it down because of the crazy demand or the, I guess demand's one way to say it, but just the number of uh, no. roadside prohibitions that were issued? No, never. So, no, the, and, and, yeah, go ahead. well, the thing that occurred to me was you don't have to impound every vehicle. You There's other things that can be done um, in terms of issuing 24 hours and other types of roadside suspensions. So why police not, not go that route? There were several pieces of information that were left out of the news report, it said impaired related investigations. 
so that, yes, how many of those were three-day or seven-day IRPs? I suspect every one of these was an IRP that Maggie Rooks had prohibition. So of that, how many were seven-day or three-day IRPs in which the impoundment of the vehicle, as you know, is completely discretionary? Well, apparently it isn't, or at least how the Victoria Police are handling it, uh, because at at some point uh, they said they couldn't impound any more vehicles, so they just had to stop. But in any event, uh, oh, I I'm pulling up the article here. It says um, there was eleven of three day seizures and six for ninety days. So so yeah yeah. So yeah, quite so a few. So that's that's a really big difference, right? So that means that there was six impaired drivers, and there was eleven others that were basically of the under the old scheme. They would have just received twenty-four hour driving prohibition because they're not legally impaired. But with the IRP scheme, if you blow a warrant now, you get an you get the three day or the seven day. So it's actually not as bad <laughs> as, of course, it sounds when you start digging through and 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 doing a little bit of back finding into the uh, into the article, and you find out that only six of those drivers were legally impaired. Maybe. And you say maybe. I say maybe because how many of them were processed criminally? None. So the rest were all processed through immediate roadside prohibition. And we all know that the we all know the issues when it comes to the approved screening device and how easy it is to get a uh, a falsely elevated reading on an AOC. So well, I also think it's the it's the attractive headline, right? The Victoria, B.C. police nabbed so many impaired drivers at Roblox, they ran out of tow trucks. It's just like, oh, well, the, every driver is impaired. But, I mean, it seems like if you dig into it, uh, the majority of them probably came from dinner and had one drink, which can get you a well, warn. And they're not really impaired in the legal sense of it. No, for for charging purposes, they're not they're not chargeable at all for impaired driving. And of course, the problem is when you get an immediate roadside prohibition, even if it's fail, it says that your ability to operate is affected by alcohol. So it's not even technically impaired. You can't even call it an impaired driving charge or investigation because. It's not their ability to operate a motor vehicle is impaired by alcohol. It's affected by alcohol, and that's completely different. But we know the media; they like to have their sensational headlines. Yeah, I don't and, think uh, so many drivers affected by alcohol. They ran out of tow trucks. Would sound quite as good. Well, of course not. It's all about you know fear mongering, scare tactics, create a boogeyman, and um, and the like, right? Because all six of those people that failed, well, 
they might have failed and they might have gone back to the police department and blown 100 milligrams. In this case, there's no charge, no criminal charge, right? So then you've got no criminal uh, impaired at all. So. Well, I expect of all these 24, I believe it was, <clears throat> there, there was probably none taking back to the um, Well, that's the what station. I said on the Simi Sarah show the other morning. I said I would be curious to see how many of these impaired investigations were actually processed criminally. And I suspect that would be a big fat zero. Um, that's number one. Number two, when you have every vehicle that's being impounded, regardless of the nature of the prohibition, so you have a three-day and you have a seven-day, well, normally roadblocks, well, you're probably going to have three, four, maybe five members there doing a roadblock. The person in charge, that would be the supervisor, would be the one that would say, okay, everyone's getting impounded tonight regardless whether it's a three-day warrant or a fail. Because police officers on a whole, in my experience, even at URSU, we rarely impounded on a three-day or a seven-day warrant. So when everyone is getting impounded for a three-day and a seven-day warrant, then the supervisor is almost guaranteed the one making that decision. So there's no so they can cry a pity party all they want, but somebody roadside made the decision to impound every person who got an IRP, whether it was a three day or a seven day. So they create the scenario and then they complain about it. So why can't the, the supervisor you know, over the course of this roadblock say, Hey, Let's let's just stop doing warns for tonight, or let's stop <laughs> impounding for warns for tonight. Um, that's a good question. Not all supervisors are switched on. Not all supervisors are are worthy of the title supervisor. They don't have. Not all supervisors necessarily have good decision making abilities, and any police officer will tell you that. So somebody at that roadblock decided, I got a great idea. Let's impound everybody tonight for everything. Not necessarily the greatest use of uh, resources and not necessarily a good decision to be made. Because yeah. don't forget, you're dealing with a three-day impound. You're waiting for a tow truck to show up. And now you just missed the real impaired driver that went through. Because everyone's so busy waiting for tow trucks for three day and seven day warrants, they're missing the really good impaired driver that just drove through the roadblock because everyone's tied up waiting for tow trucks when they didn't need to call tow trucks in the first place. Well, you think of all the ones they missed by shutting down the roadblock completely because they didn't have tow trucks. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, whoever made that decision roadside there was an idiot. Okay. We'll leave it at that, I think. Um, I think it's a, a good point to pivot uh, into the next thing I want to talk about because it does relate, at least to some degree, um, about IRPs uh, and other roadside prohibitions, uh, administrative prohibitions, uh, as opposed to um, charging with uh, an actual impaired offense. Um, and the point I want to get at with that is... Um, what has been all the the talk lately in driving law circles, which is 
the new no-fault model in BC um, for ICBC. Now, there was another case recently. It seems like every day there's some article or or um, news outlet picks up something about someone that's involved in a bad accident and they're you know, not getting anything for their pain and suffering. The latest one was a, a cyclist that was really significantly injured. Um, and again, under the no new fault system, won't really be getting um, any compensation. Now, Kyla and I had talked about this uh, when I was on her podcast not too long ago. And one of the things we were going back and forth about um, was, well, the way to get around the no fault system is that it, you can sue and the fault is re-engaged um, if they're charged with, if the driver's charged with something like dangerous driving or impaired driving. And so they were kind of talking about the police's um, thought process in going forward uh, with impaired charges as opposed to uh, an IRP or something like that. So I was wondering from you if you can kind of fill us in on, on what goes into the police's decision-making roadside um, and how they're going to proceed with an impaired investigation as opposed to an IRP. If there's a collision with injuries, and I'm talking significant injuries, not just simply, oh, I have whip cash, then they're almost guaranteed to go criminal. Um, <clears throat> so in the scenario you're describing there, if a cyclist is struck, and seriously injured, then you can be guaranteed they're going to go criminally. The police on the investigation. If the if the um, if the cyclist has a, you know a little boo boo and looks like they cut themselves shaving, then they'll probably go by IRP. Okay, so is is that always kind of how what the training is, uh, or has it been well, for that discretion? Okay, well, the training for the IRP is supposed to be, you're not supposed to issue an IRP in a collision. But we do see right. it quite often. All the time. It's more of a guideline. Um, you know, there's no real set practice or policy set in place. I think if you were to FOI, you know, various police departments and the RCMP to see what their policy is when it comes to issuing IRPs, at collisions, I think you'll either see it's silent, nothing said at all, or it'll be there in black and white. But, I mean, you see it. I've reviewed, since I've retired, I've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of, of IRPs, and many, many of those have involved uh, collisions. So, you know. Yeah, I I, I see them every day. Um, yeah, exactly. They're the IR, It seems like regardless of collision, it's it's still always IRP. But now with the new no fault system, uh, maybe it's a policy that should be actually engaged instead of just the vague guideline or or whatever is in place at the, at the moment. Yeah, but the police can't change how they do their investigations based on an ICBC change, right? They're not going. It doesn't, you know, added investigative work onto the shoulders of the police because ICBC has changed their policy and brought in no, no, no fault insurance. That's that wouldn't fly. 
we need you to do more work because ICBC has decided to do this. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Because there's a lot of factors that go into play, right, for impaired driving investigations criminally. Is there a qualified technician available? Is there enough resources on the road available to take two members off the road for a few hours? You know, is it busy? There's too many calls for service. So that's why everything doesn't automatically go to a criminal code investigation for impaired. However, the IRPs are used far too often. They are abused by the police out there because they are doing IRPs on on members of the public that are clearly not even impaired, they're intoxicated. They're grossly intoxicated, and the officers are still going by way of IRP. So, um, and in that vein, the IRP uh, process is being abused. That wasn't the intent of the IRP scheme. That wasn't the purpose of it. But, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, and that's just that's just the nature of the beast now. It's been around for 11 years, and you're not going to see it change. Oh. Police will almost always default to the IRP when they're conducting an impaired investigation. It's true. that It's definitely not going anywhere. Um, and it just becomes more and more prevalent. And it's it, frankly, it's easier. Um, I don't want to say that the police just take the easier option, but just like any of us, you know, if you have two viable options or multiple viable options in your work or your everyday life, it's usually usually default to the to easier option. And it, like you said, like it does use and less resources taking officers off the road and that kind of thing. Um, so the the other question I had for you, I guess, generally, is uh, someone that's in the course of many, many years of policing have come face to face with some pretty severe accidents um, and seen some, let's say, significant carnage, I would suppose, from, from some accidents. What are your thoughts generally on the no-fault system? I know it's been quite a big debate now. Um, are you for it or against it? Or I, I assume you probably got the rebate check like everyone else did, but uh, do you think it's <laughs> do you think that that that's uh, that's it makes it worthwhile? Or are you uh, what's kind of your position on the no fault system in general? Well, as a taxpayer, and as someone who pays every year in in uh, insurance through ICBC for several vehicles, um, I think the I think ICBC needed to do something to the flow of money out for people with, you know, little boo-boos, and, and it was, a, you know, at the end of the day, it was abused by by lots of people out there who um, have faked their injuries. I mean, there are some injuries that you can't fake, obviously, but anything soft tissue, especially dealing with the back, dealing with your back, well, good luck in proving or disproving that, right? This is why you know, you, 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 this is why ICBC would send out their special investigators to, uh, to the person who's claiming traumatic back and neck injuries and they're out there water skiing or landscaping or whatever, right? So I think at the end of the day, isn't the no-fault insurance basically we'll cover, we'll cover your wages or salary or whatever it is based on your injury, but you're not going to get like $400,000 for pain and suffering. 
uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Well, I don't think you're going to find a lot of people arguing with that because a lot of people have made a career. I'm talking about drivers, not lawyers. Of having lawyers too. And getting a <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I'm indifferent to it. I'm indifferent to it because um, I think there's checks and balances that have to go both ways. And I understand they're trying to prevent the fraudulent claims. I get that. But I think honest people out there are going to suffer through the no fault as well, through injuries that they're going to, uh, that they've sustained. So I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how it plays out because, I mean, it could change with the next government that comes in too. I have to think about no fault. Yeah. One, one, one swipe of the pen from the government, suddenly no fault doesn't exist anymore and we're back to the old system. Okay. Um, so the, the the next thing we wanted to ask you about, again, more stuff about uh, impaired driving and the like. There is there there's been uh, some talk out of the states that they're uh, putting forward a bill um, to push safe driving in terms of avoiding impaired driving, and the idea is to have systems installed in cars. Um, Similar uh, to what some drivers are required to have if they've had alcohol convictions, like impaired driving, um, they uh, they might be required to have like an interlock machine in their vehicle. Uh, what they're hoping to do, and I, I think they're still working on technology now, is a system that uses different methods to see if there's an impaired driver behind the wheel, um, including sensors to detect alcohol in cabin air, a uh, camera atop the um, instrument cluster, which looks for like facial cues, signaling the driver is uh, inebriated, and then the vehicle itself looking for driving patterns, suggesting an impaired driver. Um, so the federal government in the United States now is funding research through driver alcohol detection systems for this kind of safety program, um, and they want to make it mandatory in, in all vehicles once that once they do have it, they want to have a bill that basically says going forward, all vehicles need to have this installed. Um, although it seems like they're still working on the technology. Uh, but if that is available, uh, what are your thoughts on having that kind of as something mandatory safety measure installed in all vehicles going forward? What a brilliantly stupid idea. Like, dumb, idiotic beyond words. Probably one of the most asinine things I've read and heard about in a very long time. And I read a lot of asinine things. So beyond stupid. There's something interesting. Uh, all the articles that talk about this also compare it to um, this law from the 1970s, which you might know about. It was a little bit before my time, so I'll, I'll put ah. it to you to... <laughs> To, to help out with this one, uh, where they made, uh, I guess, the technology for, uh, you had to have your seatbelt clicked in or else the car wouldn't go. And then I guess they repealed that bill like the next year after it was made because they had some malfunctions or some issues. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I do not. That's probably something that came out of the state. Yeah. so stupid. Um, I mean, where do you begin with this type of uh, bonehead uh, funding? decisions this here's a here's a great idea talk about something 
that is A, going to not work, and B, be subject to so many problems that the, the manufacturers will actually end up getting sued because someone's going to need to get in their car right away to go somewhere in an emergency. The car won't start because of some really subjective issue that, uh, that the car has detected. And someone's going to get injured or killed because of it, because this person get, can't get to where they got to get to or get away from where they got to get to. And, they're gonna, and, the, and the manufacturer's going to get sued. You're never going to see this come into fruition because there's just way too many problems with it. I mean, where do you start with, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, this system that's going to be allegedly in the car, well, how often is it going to be tested for accuracy? What happens when it malfunctions? What happens if it breaks? Car won't start? Car will start. Will it function at all? How? And a driver knows, doesn't know anything about most alcohol. So Buddy burps, and, and uh, he's under the legal limit, but he burps, and now the car detects, oh, wait a minute. You're impaired. Car won't start. Or, or, or what happens if the car detects that you're driving all over the road? Does it just turn off? Is that going to create a car accident? Car suddenly shuts off? Okay. And what happens if you're just a shitty driver overall because you don't know how to drive or you're on your phone? The device goes, oh, you're impaired driving. Really? That doesn't work that way. And, and, the, and the camera thing is ridiculous because, well, how is it going to detect that versus a person who's just tired versus a person who's just naturally got a sad, impaired, depressed look like you do, right? So, yes, Eeyore. Eeyore. So, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's rainbows and unicorns. It sounds good, and I'm sure certain zealots out there, you know, who've had someone lost to them through impaired driving is going to think this is the greatest idea in the world. But laws and policies should not be emotionally driven. They should be driven uh, in a manner that makes sense. And this does not make any sense and it will not come to fruition because there's zero quality control over it and it's way too subjective and a person in an emergency situation might not be able to start the car because the car has detected something that doesn't exist. And then the other thing you didn't mention, um, what if you're being a designated driver and you've got drunk passengers? They would have the alcohol in the air or whatever from their. Oh breath. well, if it's gonna, well exactly. Residual. I mean, there's, there's, like I said, this is just the stupidest thing. This is probably, this is probably, an idea by the same person at the roadblock who said, "Let's impound every car tonight, even if they're a three-day warrant." They're everywhere. They're stupid people. They're, everywhere. they're on the road. They're on the roads in Victoria, impounding cars, and they're in the Senate office and the United States government. Yeah. It's yeah. the same person, more or less. Oh, they're all they're all cut from the same idiotic cloth. Like they all went to the same school of stupidity. A lot of it is done because they want to get their name on something, or they're looking for promotion, or whatever. They're looking to look at look what look at me. Look what I've done. I suggested this. Okay, please go home to mummy's basement. <laughs> way over your head. All right, I think uh, I think that's a good a good point to to leave that off on. Um, so, 
The last thing Kyla usually does with these is she goes to the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. But before we get to that, I thought uh, I'd put you on the spot and ask you um, a question about Traffic Corp, because that's what the two of us tend to do together a lot when we're working together, is go and go to Traffic Court um, and fight tickets for clients. Um, so I wanted to put you on the spot a bit and ask what your favorite traffic court case was so far that you recall that you've worked with us on? Oh. Well, I have two. One it doesn't have to be with me. It could be with another one of the lawyers. I'll be a little upset, though. Well, there's two. There's one uh, a speeding ticket and one seatbelt ticket. <laughs> and, of course, the seatbelt one was with you, and that was entertaining on so many levels. <laughs> I felt so bad for the officer because he went down quicker than the uh, than the Canadian dollar. Yeah, that was um, yeah, that one was the the one from last week. The uh, I yeah. I it's a, it was a nice officer, and I think that the only thing I kept thinking was, and I think he did proper investigation. His notes were good. The only thing I kept thinking when he was on the stand is like, what? He's in such a rush. What is he in a rush for? He's going to make a mistake, and then he made a mistake. Um, well, so. he made a couple of mistakes, and and they just got worse and worse as time went on. That's the that's that's the thing, and the fact that the uh, the traffic JP then scolded him. Um, it was not. Uh, I felt uncomfortable. I did, I felt bad for him. I hope he uses it as a learning experience because anytime I had my ass ripped open on the stand by the defense or the judge, I always learned by it. Yeah, that's right? same for me. Well, that's that's how you learn going to court and. Yes. But the other evidence. one was uh, excessive speed from 2019, where the uh, the member's notes look good, and he absolutely positively would not deal with counsel. So. Uh, he gave his evidence, and it was awful under cross-examination, and I was jumping up in the back waiting to get called as the expert to get qualified in laser, but in the end, the, the, the lawyer just simply called for, I have it over here, they um, called uh, no evidence and uh, insufficient evidence motion, and the judge just threw it out quicker than you could spit. Okay, yeah, I know which one that is. Um... We're talking about Mendoza. Is that the case? Mendoza. Yes. Yeah, that was a really good case. Um, so that's a good good place to leave that off because I think Kyla did that one. So an ode to the uh, to regular host. Um, so the last segment that Kyla likes to have on these podcasts is the ridiculous driver of the week. <laughs> Ridiculous driver of the week. Now, uh, we have a driver here uh, in Oregon who set a new blood alcohol content record. So before I tell you what it is, I want to know what the highest reading for blood alcohol you ever came across in the line of your work over the past 30 plus years. Um, it was just under 800. Oh, wow. I was thinking it would be nowhere near that, because so this one, this one was uh, point seven seven eight, so it might oh, be so pretty close. 
Yeah, so about about yeah. the same. No, I'm just I'm just teasing you. I, I already know about that story. Oh. <laughs> You're making me look bad here. I, I I wasn't surprised. I mean, how many how many have you come across? Like it must have been thousands. I, I mean, it's bound to be a, if the highest the highest I ever got was two ninety. Yeah. Um, when I read that, and for people out there listening, they like to use the point oh eight still. The media loves to do that, but point oh eight hasn't existed on the books in Canada in decades. It's actually whole numbers. It's eighty milligrams. So this guy blew 778 milligrams um, um, when the legal limit's 80. And, of course, when I read that article, the first thing I thought of was, I'm going to call bullshit. There's obviously something wrong with the instrument. Um, I mean, technically, the instrument shouldn't be reading that high anyways. It, 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 they're, the, the, the breathalyzer instruments are supposed to have... Um, a mechanism where if the sample is too high, it says, nope, <laughs> this is beyond our limit. So I don't know what they were using for a device down there, but that high of a reading tells me you're gonna, it's either a defect with the instrument or it's grossly, um, grossly uh, uh, contaminated breath sample. Because this is a breath sample, it's not a blood sample. Right? Yeah. So. Breath sample, guys blowing 778, I'm calling horseshit right out the gate. When I read that story, I went, no, not possible. That guy should be dead. Dead, 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 dead. No, so it it, it was a blood sample, actually. I'm looking at the article again. So they do say it was a blood okay. sample. So it's a blood sample. So then the blood sample, I can, I can almost guarantee that in some capacity that there has to be a problem with the analysis. You cannot have a BAC that high. And keep in mind, I just I was I did an event I did a report just recently on an impaired blood sample of oh, not recently, last year, where they drew the blood, but they cleaned the area before they drew the blood with an alcohol swab right on the skin and then stuck the needle right into there. Well now you just contaminated that blood sample. So like you read it, you kinda go, That seems real high. It's too high to be believed. There's a problem. There was something wrong with either how they drew the blood, how they stored the blood, or how they analyzed the blood. There's no way it could be that high. Well, it, it looks like he pled guilty, so um, maybe he should have fought it. Uh, I don't know. Yep. I don't know what what what. Uh, I'm sure there was other evidence of impairment that would have been enough just of on its there own. Was, there would have been some evidence of impairment beyond that for sure, but. I'm sorry, at that at that higher reading, there was a problem. There was a problem with the analysis. Something something happened to create a BAC that was beyond acceptable and beyond believable. Well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's humanly possible, but, uh, you know, some people can really pack back the drink, so I don't know. Well, I don't care how much of a raging alcoholic you are. I don't care how great your tissue tolerance is. Your body has a, a limit before you hit the area of alcohol poisoning, where you're unconscious and now you're in a life life threatening um, situation. The guy's almost at 800 milligram percent, right? Yes. Any any cop out there, any qualified tech, technician out there. 
with any amount of experience would go, um, there's a problem. That guy should be dead. But it's another thing that uh, looks great on the headline. Of course, great on the headline. And so and he... To, and to lay people, to simple people, to, you know, John Q. Public or, you know, Sally Citizens. Wow, look at that. That's awful. But anyone who has any amount of background in impaired driving investigations would go, uh, I don't know, that smells like day old fish. So the other, that I guess that's the new record now in Oregon. Um, they said the highest blood alcohol contents reported before that was 0.72 in 2007, and there was a 0.70 in 2009. Both female, actually, so this one was a male. Um, I'm calling bullshit. On all of them? On all of them. Alright, so the records are no good anymore. It's funny that they keep track of that like it's a, like they have a record book for that kind of thing, like the that they keep down at their, like a wonder they keep in their state department. Yeah, it's like <laughs> a high score in a game. Yeah. Congratulations, you won. A year in prison. <laughs> Grand prize, you never get to drive again. Your suspended license is suspended for life. <laughs> so I think that's a good point to wrap it up. Um, I'd like to thank Grant for coming on and being a guest, and I'd like to thank myself for coming on and being a host uh, on behalf of Kyla. I'm sure she would thank me if she was here. You did an absolute mediocre job, and I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I I am glad to hear that it was adequate. <laughs> so... Thanks, everyone, for listening. And then next time on Driving Law, probably with Kyla Lee. Um, hopefully. Yeah, let's see. She's got a busy schedule. But uh, tune in next time for more fun Driving Law and likely with Kyla. <laughs>